I'm going to share with you comes out of my own personal life, and so there's a lot of stories, but these stories are going to reach down and they're going to connect with you right where you are personally in your life and your walk with God and your family, your marriage, your business, your occupation, everything that you're doing. I want us to open to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16, where The Apostle John said, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who remain in love remain in God, and God remains in them. About 20 minutes from now, you're going to have a brand new revelation of the love of God in a way that you did not have before. I'll never forget the year was 1993. My wife and I were lead pastors of Victory Christian Center in Des Moines, Iowa. It was just absolutely an amazing church that we raised up. I went to a doctor to get help, and normally that's why you go to a doctor, and I had no clue that the help he was giving me was a medication that was taken off the market in Europe and removed from the market in Canada and was under investigation by the FDA in the United States of America because it had damaged and hurt the nervous systems of many thousands upon thousands of people. And I became another individual numbered with those thousands. Maybe you're watching in your live streaming right now and you've had something similar happen and God is going to invade your life today with healing and with restoration. And he's going to do that for every one of us also. I was sitting at the breakfast table. I had just gotten released from the mental institution. I was shaking as if I had the palsy because my nervous system had been damaged so badly and I thought, how could this happen? How could this happen to me? You see, because when I was 15 years old, I was a product of a World War II father and mother, and they came out of the Great Depression, and I'll never forget at the age of 15, one morning I had a temperature of 106, and my father picked me up in his arms, and he carried me personally to Copley Memorial Hospital, and the temperature kept going up, and I had no idea at the age of 15, the day before I was fine, but now all of a sudden my world is falling completely apart, and my temperature didn't stay at 106, it went up to 107, 108.6, and for the next week, it was that high, and the doctors told my parents, your son will be a vegetable if he even lives, because I had a very rare strain of salmonella food poisoning that was genetically equivalent to typhoid fever, and so they talked to my parents, and they said, well, we're going to try giving him this medication, but you need to know we can only give it to him for 48 hours. If we go beyond 48 hours, it's going to damage something in his body, and they gave it to me for seven hours and then my temperature is going up to 109 degrees they packed me in ice my mother is here today mom just wave at everybody real quick my mom was in the room she buried her head in my father's chest and says bud he's dead and I start screaming at my mother and I say mom I'm okay I'm okay and I had the brand new spiritual body that 
that Jesus promised to those who would receive in his resurrection. I want you to know heaven is real. I want you to know hell is real. They're not figments of people's imagination. They're not stories in the Bible that were just made up by authors who had no sense or common understanding. It is the living, breathed word of God with every jot and tittle accurate and full of the presence and the purpose and the restoration and the salvation of God for your life and my life. And I could see my body, the shell of my body laying in the bed as the doctors and nurses rushed in and they're trying to start my heart and I'm on my way to that place that Jesus has prepared for you and I. I'm on my way to that mansion. And the moment I would think a thought, I would hear God respond to me before I was done thinking that thought. And I was thinking, I wish prayer was this easy, you know, when we're in our physical body. And then all of a sudden, I heard him on the inside of me say, it's not your time yet, go back in your body. And and Curtis, I'm thinking, well, I'm only 15 years old. I don't do this for recreation. I have no clue how I got out of my body. I have no clue how to get back in my body. And bam, I'm back in my body. Shouting everything in the Bible is true. Everything is true. The nurse said, you're delirious. Go back to sleep. Two days later, a cardiologist, a Jewish cardiologist by the name of Dr. Newman sat on the edge of my bed and he says, young man, I'm so, so sorry to tell you this. So sorry. But the medication that we had to give you, we knew it was going to damage something if we gave it to you for more than 48 hours. But it damaged your heart, and your heart is so badly damaged, I doubt that you will see the age of 29. 15 years old. And I'm thinking, my life is gone already. I'm thinking, I'll have no girlfriend. I'll have no wife. I'll have no kids. I'll have no daughters that I walk down the aisle and see them married. I have, I'll have no grandchildren. And I fell into a depression. And my World War II father, veteran who fought for the freedoms that we have in this nation, came into the room and he says, you know, There's buddies of mine that are in VA hospitals all over this nation. And he said, some of them have lost their mind. Some of them are drooling. Some have no control over their faculties. And some have lost their body parts. He says, Kim, you have a good mind. You have all of your body parts. Maybe if you'd quit feeling sorry for yourself and pray for other people, maybe God would heal you. See, you know, that settled on me, and I buzzed for the head nurse, and the head nurse came in, and there was no privacy laws at this time, so I says, could you please give me a list of people that are worse than me? She says, why? And I says, I want to pray for them. And so when I got that list, I looked at that list, and I thought, I don't even know how to pray. But in my heart, I wanted to just pour out what was in me. So I says, God, please help these people that are worse than me. And this peace came on me. I had no idea 
that it wasn't what I said when I prayed. So many times we repeat a prayer and God's not interested in repeated prayers. He's interested in prayers that come out of our heart, prayers that are led and produced by the Holy Spirit that flow out of our heart and carry the heart of God and carry the passion of God and carry the purpose of God. I had no idea that that was the kind of prayer I was praying. It was just coming out of my heart. And so I fell asleep. I just felt so peaceful. And the next day they wake me up at 6 a.m. in the morning and they took an electrocardiogram which was normal they came back at 10 a.m. and they took another one and I said what's what's wrong why are you taking another one and they said there was something wrong with our other machine and so I accepted that and they come back around 11 o'clock or so and they say you know we're taking another EKG on you and I'm thinking at this time my lord I must have taken a turn for the worse. What's going on? And they come back in at noon and they says, get dressed, you're going home. I started arguing with them. I pleaded with them because Dr. Newman told me if you even get out of bed, you'll drop dead of a heart attack. And I'm thinking, no, I can't get out of bed. And I had one of those real sweet nurses and I, I says, I can't get out of bed. And she goes, get out of bed. You know, she sounded more like a military sergeant. And uh, so I got out of bed and I'm sobbing and crying and thinking I'm going to drop over dead any moment here. We better call for the coroner. We better get a casket in here. Oh, dear Jesus, I'm coming home, Lord. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. I'm only 15. And so at 2 o'clock, Dr. Newman comes in and he's got two charts with him. On one chart is taped seven electrocardiogram strips showing what was going on with my heart. On the other chart were three strips of cardiogram tape. He showed my parents and I, and he says, look at this, this seven electrocardiograms, these are the ones that we took on your son's heart while he was here. You can see these squiggly lines. I know you don't understand him, but his heart is severely damaged. Now, here's these three we took yesterday, and look at these squiggly lines here. And here's how people can, can get so stuck in unbelief they don't even realize what they say. He says, look at this. He says, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you. And I says, you mean I'm healed? He says, I'm afraid so. <laughs> See, they're so used to a medical situation where nothing ever turns around, they never see a miracle, and so now they get confronted with resurrection power, and they don't even realize what they're saying. The people in the hospital are running around like they're crazed. I mean, Dr. Phil wasn't alive at that time, but if he was, they'd have been calling for Dr. Phil. We think that we've got proof of the resurrection of Jesus in our midst. What do we do? He'd probably say, well, get saved. <laughs> so after that God worked miraculously in my life and I go from death's doorstep and I have to cut a lot of out of this and shorten it down a bit but I ended up going and participating in the 1980 US Olympic trials 500 meter event for the sport of ice speed skating and now we fast forward back to the breakfast table. I'm shaking like I got the palsy. How could this happen to me? You healed my heart, Jesus. 
how could my nervous system get damaged? And so we go from 1972, where my heart was damaged and healed, and now we're in 1993, and I just get out of the mental institution because of a medication a doctor gave me, and I'm shaking like I got the palsy. That morning, my wife made eggs and bacon and toast and coffee and I'm trying to drink my coffee and my hand's shaking so bad I spill it all over my bacon and eggs and lap and the telephone rings and my wife answers it and she says, some doctor's on the phone. Well, folks, I'm telling you, a doctor at this time in my life is the last person that I wanted to talk to. I mean, I maybe wanted to choke a few doctors, but no, we don't want to have any kind of a conversation. But reluctantly, I went to the phone and he says, hello, Reverend Wetland. He's talking with an accent because he's from Ghana, but he's in Toronto and he's raised up this great church and churches all over the world. And he says, I read one of your books. And he says, I want you to come and be one of our camp meeting speakers in the spring of 1994. And I'm telling you, I said something to him as a young preacher I never would have said to anyone in my life. I said, I'll pray about it. I go back, sit there, finish breakfast. The next few weeks, I'm wondering how in the world could I possibly even think of going and preaching a camp meeting. My nervous system is damaged so bad. I can't put two intelligible thoughts back to back, one with another. I can't preach. I don't know what I'm going to do. But I had this peace in my heart that I should accept the invitation. And so I told my wife, I says, Sheree, I feel I'm supposed to accept the invitation. And she didn't say anything, but she gave me one of those looks that only a wife can give to her husband that looks at you and you, you know what she's thinking? She's thinking, are you freaking crazy? <laughs> it was just one of those looks like, are you sure about this? I never forget when Sheree and I boarded the plane and Des Moines, Iowa, and we landed at Pearson International Field in Toronto, Canada, and were greeted by these wonderful people whom to this day are very close friends with us. The whole church family is. And they're driving us to the hotel. And uh, as we get to the hotel, I look at a brochure they handed me, and to my absolute utter horror, I realized, oh no. The Archbishop Benson Itahosa from Nigeria is my preaching partner for this event. And you may or may not know much about Benson Itahosa, but he raised up a church of 20,000 people in Lagos, Nigeria, in a time of horrible civil unrest. It's said that he raised 19 people from the dead, and three assassination attempts from the military were carried out against his life. And every time they tried to assassinate him, the one who was uh, doing the assassination attempt dropped dead. And so so the military decided we better not come against this man of God and uh, so they says we better get on his side and so from that point on any time he left the country they give him a military escort uh, to the airport and any time he came back in the country they would give him a military escort from the airport to his ministry complex and this is the guy I've got to preach with and so then when we get to the hotel, they walk us up to the room and I'm looking around and I'm thinking, 
Cherie, why did they give us a hotel room like us? This is way beyond us. I mean, I'm not talking like a hotel suite. I'm talking about a separate kitchen, a separate bathroom with jacuzzi tub and double sinks. I'm talking about a separate living room area with cathedral ceilings. And then you've got one of these viewing rooms. And over here, you've got the special dining area. And I'm thinking, why are they doing this for me? You see, I could not see myself for who I was because the devil came against my life and hurt my life. And when the devil comes at you, it is not only an attack, but it literally scars the way that you look at yourself. You look at yourself through the cloud of what he's done to you, and you think, how in the world can I be what God says I am when that's not what's happening in my life? And so I'm thinking, I don't even deserve this hotel room. And so I told Shuri, I told her, Curtis, I says, I got to fast and pray. I got to get God's anointing on me. I've got to have God's anointing on me. I've got to preach with the bishop, eat a host of tomorrow. I don't know how in the world I'm going to do this. And, and so of all the places to fast and pray, I locked myself in the dining room. Now, in the dining room was every type of cheese and sausage and crackers and Vienna hot dogs and fried chicken and barbecue and everything you can imagine and every dessert possible. And I mean, oh, Rabbi, I told Sheree, oh, Rabbi, I'm fasting and praying until God's anointing comes on me. Oh, Rabbi, see, I didn't know you could just walk with God and enjoy God and carry his presence. See, I was still all into works. I got to do something. I got to do something. I got to do something. And see, later in my life, then I got to the place where, okay, I received something. And then after we receive something, you can grow to the place to where I just become something. And all I got to do is be myself and keep enjoying my relationship with Jesus. Am I helping anyone today? Am I helping anyone? And so I'm thinking, I got I to gotta have God's anointing on me. And, and then to my spirit, I keep hearing this voice, take your wife shopping. And I'm thinking, I got a wife and four little daughters. And I'm thinking, I've seen more shopping than any man should ever have to be subjugated to in his entire life. This makes no sense. So I go back to praying again, and I keep hearing it, take your wife shopping, and I open my eyes. And I mean, staring me eyeball to eyeball is this piece of chocolate cake. <laughs> now, this was not your normal chocolate cake. It's moist, succulent, chocolate icing oozing its way down the side with a cherry on top. It's the kind they would say in Alabama will make you cry like a baby when you eat it. Well, folks, all I got to say is I cried a lot of tears that day. And I come out of the dining room and my wife says, well, did God anoint you? And I said, I ate the chocolate cake. I couldn't even commit, keep my commitment to God to fast. So I go over to the phone and she says, what are you doing? I says, I'm calling someone over from the ministry. She says, why? I says, I'm going to have us take us to downtown Toronto. 
And she says, why? And I says, well, to go shopping. She says, why? And I says, because we might as well eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die in front of the archbishop and 3,000 people. I know God's given me a hilarious way to say it, but I'm telling you what, when I lived it and walked through it, it was not hilarious. So there we are, window shopping, downtown Toronto. And uh, my wife reached over and she grabbed my hand. And I turn and I look in those soft, beautiful brown eyes, and suddenly I realize I've got bitterness and unforgiveness in my heart against my wife. And I thought, this makes no sense. Why am I bitter against my wife? Why am I holding unforgiveness against her? She's done nothing to me. It's that doctor. This doctor I never want to see again in my entire life. He's the one who did this to me so that I'm shaking like I've got the palsy. And I looked at my wife and I said, Cherie, forgive me. I've got unforgiveness in my heart to you. I got bitterness in my heart to you. And we, we prayed and we held one another and man, we just smooched up a storm right there in downtown Toronto, amen? <laughs> She's my wife, I can smooch with her. I could go smooch with her right now if I want to while I'm preaching this message, amen? <laughs> man, she's... She's looking so good, I may cut this message short. <laughs> it's good when God blesses you with a good mate, isn't it? It, it? it sure is. And you see, what I didn't realize is whatever we carry in our spirit is what we give to our wife or our husband and our kids and those who are closest to us. And I had no idea that I was carrying unforgiveness and anger and rage and bitterness in my heart against this doctor. And so it's all in me. And I'm thinking, I'm not hurting anybody. This isn't doing anything. But the truth is, I wasn't carrying the sweet, healing, restoring presence of God and grace of God in my life. And so I was constantly pouring out bitterness on my wife and my four beautiful little daughters and didn't even know it. Because when you grab a hold of bitterness and unforgiveness, anger, hold on to grudges, it deceives you. You see, just like the Holy Spirit gives us revelation and gives us light, when we hold on to the opposite, we get deceived. We think everything is okay, but it's really not. So you fast forward to the next day, and I'm sitting there on the platform, All Nations Full Gospel Church, Toronto. 60 nations represented under one roof, all dressed in their native clothing because it's a special camp meeting event. And I mean, the worship was just magnificent. And, uh, but then when they went into praying, oh, I'm telling you what, Americans should go to a church like this just to get their eyes open. I, I mean, it, it was an event just to see them pray. And so then all of a sudden, the worship's over, announcements are done, 
And uh, Bishop Itahosa pulls me real close to him and gives me a big hug and whispers something in my ear. To this day, I don't have a clue what the man said to me. For all I know, he could have said, your mama's ugly and wears combat boots. Go out there and try to be anointed. I don't know what the guy said to me. And then Dr. Donkor, I'm sitting on the platform, he extends his arms to me and he says, and now the mightily anointed man of God from the United States of America. Marvin, when he said mightily anointed, my mind drifted back to the days when I was a student at Oral Roberts University. In the tent meetings of Dr. Roberts across our country, the hundreds of thousands of people that were touched by God and many healed by God. And so he's thinking, uh, or I'm thinking, mightily anointed. And uh, he says, the man of God from the U.S. come forward. And so I'm thinking, Oral Roberts must be in the room somewhere. So I just sat there smiling real big, waiting for Oral Roberts to come through one of the doors. And pastor's looking at me, I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him. And, and then finally, he says, and now, and he winks at me like this. And now the mightily anointed man of God from the United States of America, and, and I'm thinking, oh no. He's talking about me. And so I get out of my chair and I come to the podium. And from the chair to the podium, my mind went totally blank. And you say, what did you do? I did what every spirit-filled preacher does when they don't know what to do. <clears throat> First, you have to clear your throat in such a way with the correct tonal pitches. <clears throat> oh, and everybody sits up. Oh, what's he going to say? And uh, I says, folks, let's just all pray in the Holy Ghost. When I said, let's pray in the Holy Ghost, it was an eruption. It wasn't just, it was, and if they would have had pews, they would have torn the pews out. Five minutes go by, I says, folks, just a little bit longer in the Holy Ghost. Fifteen minutes go by, just a little longer in the Holy Ghost, folks. Come on, come on, let's just keep praying. And uh, we get down to 20 minutes, and I'm thinking, oh, folks, a little longer in the Holy Ghost, because I'm figuring a bunch of us praying like this, Jesus will surely come quickly, and I won't have to preach this message. So all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit fell on me. And uh, I mean, it just started pouring out of my spirit. And in my mind, I can hear what I'm preaching. And my mind is thinking, you can't preach. You can't put two intelligible thoughts back to back with one another. You're shaking like you've got the palsy. And I'm thinking, my Lord, this is just so anointed. And uh, what I did is I held onto my Bible real tight, or I put my hands in my pockets because I didn't want to see anybody, anybody to see my hands shaking so bad. I suppose I could have just stood there and shook and pretended I was Benny Hinn and said, oh, brother, the anointing is strong on me today. Strong, brother, strong. But it wasn't the anointing of the Holy Spirit. My nervous system was damaged. And I didn't even know what I was going to do or how I was going to live life and how I was going to go forward. So let me just share a few tidbits with you today 
of what I preached in Toronto on that particular day. I talked about how to live an anointed life, and some of this stuff is in my book I've got out there on how to live an anointed life. It's so practical. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, referring to their wives, with understanding. Notice it says we're to dwell with our wives with understanding. You know, I've been to so many men's conferences, and as men, we kind of laugh and joke sometimes, and we say things like, oh, them women, you can never understand them. But the truth is, you and I have the Spirit of God. God's the one who took woman from a man's side. You have Isha, which is the man in Hebrew, in, 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 or Ish, which is the man in Hebrew, Isha, which is the woman taken from man. And God designed us as men to understand our wives. And that's one of the things our wives need more than anything is that we understand. They don't usually need solutions. They just need to open their heart and talk to us. And do you know that's how a woman submits herself to her own husband? Sometimes as men, we get frustrated and we think, why does my wife tell me all these things, every little detail, you know? We were at the store and Alicia pooped in her britches and it ran down her leg and I had to do this and go to the back. Every detail of everything that went on through the day. Why does a wife do that? Because she's taking her heart and putting her heart into your hands as her husband. And all she needs you to do is listen and understand. Can I have a good amen from all the women today? Praise God. So I'm preaching from 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor. And this particular Greek word for honor means to pay the highest price. Well, what does that mean to pay the highest price? It means that our wives are the highest commodity that we could ever have in our life, a gift that is so phenomenal it wouldn't matter what price you paid for a gift like that. It would never equate to the value that your wife is to your life. Come on now, someone help me today. Say a good amen. amen. And so give honor, the highest price to your wife as to the weaker vessel. She's not weaker as an individual, but only as a vessel and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. You see, what I was realizing is that to carry God's anointing and God's presence, we've got to be in right relationship with one another in our marriage, our home, in our family. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you were also being built together for the dwelling place of God and the Spirit. Do you know that being part of a church family and embracing the vision that's in our pastor's heart, allowing that vision to get in us, linking up with the vision and serving as a team player is one of the ways that we grow because God builds us together. We grow together. We don't grow individually. You cannot grow without being planted in a local church. 
And no, I'm not talking about visiting the church, attending the church, frequenting the church, showing up to the church whenever you feel like showing up to the church. I'm talking about allowing the Holy Spirit to do a work that only He can do in our hearts so that a desire to be planted in our local church family rises up on the inside of us. And only the Holy Spirit can do something like that. And uh, when that occurs in our life, it says that's the place where we start to grow. See, too many of us are trying to grow independently all alone by ourselves. Well, you know, I just want to come when I want. I want to sit where I want. I don't really want to get to know anybody. I just want to come and hear the word. I just want to grow in faith. I just want this to happen in my life. Well, you see, this all happens when you allow God to knit your heart together in your local church. You embrace the vision, and you start to serve as a team player, and then you start to grow. Then you start to carry a greater level of the presence of God. Well, you see, because of what I had gone through in my life, and because of what that doctor did to me, who was a Christian doctor, by the way, I, I hated Christians, but yet I'm traveling all over the world preaching the Word of God to the very people that I don't like. I mean, it seems kind of like a dichotomy, but at the same time, I was so hurt, I was so wounded, I didn't know what to do, and I'm shaking like I got the palsy, and I can't figure life out. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sometimes we read that part and go, oh yeah, Jesus is going to give me rest. But we don't read the rest of the scripture where he tells us exactly how he's going to give us his rest. Look at this. He said, take my yoke upon you. What is it what he's talking about when he says the yoke? He's using a farming example, which everybody in that culture understood. You take two oxen and you take a yoke, which is either a wooden or a metal frame, and you put it around the necks of those oxen so they can do what? So that they can be yoked together for the purpose of work or service or to plow a field. And so Jesus is saying the same thing. He says, when you take my yoke upon you, you'll start to learn and grow. Well, what yoke is he talking about? Well, let's keep reading here. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am <clears throat> gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, we live in a kingdom full of opposites. If you want to receive, you've got to give something or sow something. If you want to be exalted, you have to humble yourself or make yourself low. But if you want the rest and peace of God, then you're the one who has to make the decision, I'm taking the yoke of Christ upon my life. I'm going to link to him. And as I link to him, then I'm going to receive the vision that's in my pastor's heart. And who's our pastor in this church? It's Pastor Randy Rice. Which is why, you know, if you come on Wednesday nights, you'll always see Cherie and I here on Wednesday night. You say, well, why would you guys be here on Wednesday nights? Because you pastor a church. Whether somebody is a believer, 
an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, or a teacher, we never outgrow our need for a local church family and for someone to pastor our life. That is why my wife and I are here every Wednesday, because I learned this from fathers in the faith that gave me very good instruction, such as Joel Osteen's father, John Osteen, was one of my fathers in the faith. Yeah, Joyce Meyer was one of our mothers in the faith when we pastored in uh, Victory Christian Center in Des Moines. She would always come and preach for us every year, and that's before she became famous and went on TV. Absolutely true. And, and so we've got a heritage. Pastor Billy Joe Doherty, Victory Christian Center in Tulsa. Mark T. Barkley, preacher of righteousness, who has been our pastor for 29 straight years. Amen. See, we, do, we don't run off looking for other voices. God intends for us to grow in a family, not follow every knucklehead that pops up and looks like they have something from God that's on Facebook or the Internet or whatever the deal is. Someone asked me the other day, oh, are you aware of this person or this person or this person or this person? I, I says, I never heard of them. What do you mean you never heard of them? I, I says, I know the name of my pastor and I know who my pastor is. And uh, I, I know another pastor now in leadership voice that God's given us, Pastor Randy Rice. And uh, I, I know uh, this other voice that we've got in our life. I don't really need any more voices than that. Paul the Apostle, did you know Paul the Apostle was part of the Antioch Church? And believe it or not, he had a pastor and it was his pastor with some of the prophets that prophesied to him and Barnabas and they released him and they says, the release of the Holy Ghost is that you guys were supposed to go out and preach and go and they, they were released and sent out of their church. They didn't get up and go out of the church. We have so many people that they don't wait to be sent. They get impatient and they decide, I'm getting up and I'm going. I'm out of here. God's called me to do this. Have at it. Have at it. I've seen so many shooting stars. Just like, Psh, oh, look at that. And then it fizzles out. Now, God's more interested in building solid foundations. Are you listening? And you and I can't do that on our own. We never outgrow the need to be pastored. And I'm telling you, you have one of the finest pastors in this area, Pastor Randy Rice. I, I have learned and received so much from him on Wednesday nights over the past two years. So much. So grateful for him. So grateful for the gift that he has. I trust that you're thankful and grateful too. Because he is a rare individual. Amen? Amen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and so, having strong, solid, right relationships with one another in our marriages, homes, families, and in our church families are several keys to having God's anointing upon our lives. And finding your place in Christ's family, linking to the vision and serving as a team player in some area of church ministry, according to Jesus, does not wear us out or stress us out, but actually allows us to live with grace upon every area of our lives and provides us with added rest, peace, energy, and strength for the long haul.
You know, at Victory Christian Center, the church that Cherie and I were pastors over in Des Moines, Iowa, great church family of just over 200 people, and uh, all 200 people served. Well, how did you get all 200 people to serve? I just shared the truth with them. And, and then sometimes we'd have a testimony weekend, and people would get up and they'd say, you know what? Pastor and Cherie, they've changed our lives and what they've helped us understand. And man, I work so hard like a dog all week long and I get worn out and I kept thinking I got to come to church on Sunday and I just need a touch from God. But Pastor Kim and Cherie helped us understand what we needed to do is come and give a touch of God to someone else. And that as we began to serve by faith, that we received the grace and strength of God on our life. You think about it, you know, when we, need a fi when we have a financial need, we're told to give. And we think, oh my gosh, I can't give. And your checkbook is screaming at you. Zero's in here, zero's in here. But then you've got to give to receive. Well, but then you need a better job. You know, you're, you're at a different income level need now. And so you need to be exalted, well, you have to humble yourself, which means you have to serve somebody else, and you want to be doing what they're doing. You want to own the type of company that they own, but yet you're not going to own that company until you serve somebody else that does the same thing that you're called to do in your life. Are you listening? Yes. And then you want the rest in the peace of God, but the rest in the peace of God doesn't come up until you let the Holy Spirit plant you in the body, because it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that he plants all of us into one body so that we can all be made to drink of one spirit. Amen. Amen. And so I'm preaching and I'm teaching this message in Toronto, and all of a sudden, to my right is this woman sitting and I yelled at her and I says, ma'am, the spirit of God is on you, run! And I mean, she takes off running from one side of the sanctuary to the other, gets to the other side and just turns around and starts hightailing it and running across the sanctuary by the platform again. And everybody goes nuts, absolutely nuts. They're totally losing it. I had to quit preaching. And so I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? And so I motioned for one of the other ministers on the platform to come to me. And I says, brother, what's going on? He says, Reverend Wetland. I says, yes. He says, that woman who's running. I says, she sure is running. He says, she can't run. She's totally crippled. I says, what? <laughs> he says, she can't run. She's totally crippled. She got out of that wheelchair and ran. Well, you see, I don't wear my glasses when I preach. So you get a little bit beyond 15 or 20 feet from me, and yeah, I can make people out, but uh, you know, you're sitting down. I don't know if you're sitting in a chair or sitting in a wheelchair, and I'm thinking, you've got to flat out be joking. And I'm thinking, oh my Lord, do you think, folks, I would have told her to run if I'd have known she was in a wheelchair? I mean, I might have said, ma'am, could you try to wiggle your little finger a little bit at but we ain't going for running when we know someone's in a wheelchair. And then we even get back to the hotel room and Cherie says to me, did you know she was in a wheelchair? I says, Cherie, give me a break. <laughs> a few weeks later, 
And you can tell this message is going to be a little, a little longer today, but I think you'll be glad that it is because you won't want to miss the end of what we're going to come to. A few weeks later, I'm in a hotel room and I'm standing in front of a mirror and I'm getting dressed. And the Holy Spirit says to me, Kim, you need to repent. Why have you walked away from me? I says, God, what do you mean? I haven't walked away from you. I says, I'm preaching somewhere in the world every week of my life. I'm serving you with my whole heart. What do you mean? I need to repent. Why have you walked away from me? And he says, Kim, every time you come to me in prayer, you don't have sweet fellowship with me anymore. You don't love on me and let me love on you. He says, you come with the venom that's in your heart, the unforgiveness that's in your heart, the bitterness that's in your heart, and you pour it all out on my altar, and you've got the guts and the audacity to call that prayer and worship. Why have you walked away from me? You need to repent. And I says, well, how about talking to the doctor who did this to my life about repenting? He says, Kim, I'm dealing with you. And see, folks, I knew when I heard the voice of God, I didn't understand why I needed to repent for something that I didn't bring upon myself, but I trusted God. Everybody say, I need to trust God. So I trusted God, and I says, okay, God, I don't understand this, but I repent. I, I surrender to you, Lord God. I ask you to work afresh in my life. I, I turn away from the bitterness that's in my heart. I turn away from the unforgiveness that's in my heart, Lord God. And the second thing he said to me was this. He says, I want you to forgive the doctor who destroyed your life. Mark eleven twenty five 25 and 26 says, and when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your father who is in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. And then Matthew 18, 32 and 30 through 34, then his Lord, after he had called him, said to him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all the debt because thou desiredest me. Shouldest thou not have also had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due him. Folks, I'm telling you, I knew what those tormentors were. Because every day of my life, I was tormented constantly, and I could not get rid of it. But then when I would go to a local church, oh, the sweet praise and worship. Oh, the presence of God. Oh, the preaching of the word that was coming out of me. And oh, and so for two hours a week or so, I would have this moment of solace. But then I'd have to go out those doors in whatever church I was walking out of, and I would have to live life again. And I faced constant torment, and I finally got tired of spending one more night with the frogs. You understand where I'm coming from? And I finally says, God, I forgive and I release this doctor for what he did to me. And you have to realize, I'm doing this while I'm shaking like I still got the palsy. And I couldn't get free from it. 
even though I'm begging God to work in my life. The third thing he said to me, pray for the doctor who destroyed your life. Interestingly enough, the word prayer is the Greek word prosomaki. And the word prosakomi, he means to worship, surrender to God, let him birth prayer in your heart and love in your heart for the person you're praying for. Matthew 5, 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Notice the context of this. We're dealing with people that are hurting our lives and sometimes doing so purposely. And this is what Jesus said we have to do as far as our behavior towards them. And so I prayed a quick prayer for the doctor. Lord, I pray for this doctor, blah, 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 blah. You've prayed prayers like that. Come on now, you know you have. We all have. And uh, he thunders right back in my spirit and says, I told you to pray for the doctor who hurt your life. I says, I did pray for him. So I thought, well, maybe, you know, I can't put two intelligible thoughts back to back with one another yet, and, and my mind is goofed up, and I'm shaking like I got the palsy. Maybe I just thought I prayed for him, but I didn't pray for him. So I said another prayer for the doctor. Same thing. He says, I thought I told you to pray for this doctor who hurt your life. And I says, but Lord, I did, I did pray for the doctor. He says, go back and read the scripture again. I say to you, love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you. I says, that's what I did. He says, read it again. Uh Uh-oh. Now I'm starting to read it in the Holy Ghost. Everybody say the Holy Ghost. Ghost. Say revelation. revelation. I'm seeing something new. Love, bless, do good, pray are those four paradigms within this scripture. Love, bless, do good, pray. And there's a connection between the first one and the last one. Love, pray, and then it finally hit me, Dave. Don't just say a quick prayer for this doctor, but you pray for him every day until the love of God fills your heart and you are reduced to love and you have nothing left in your heart except absolute, perfect, pure love for this doctor and his family that ruined your life. I'm in the hotel room waiting for him to come pick me up to go preach as the Lord's talking to me about this, and I screamed as loud as I could, and I says, No, I won't do it! And then I realized... I'd walked away from God and didn't know it. Because where did we start at the beginning? We started right here in 1 John 4, 16. We have known and have believed the love that God has for us. God is love and those who remain in love remain in God and God remains in them. And I realized I have no love in me for this doctor. And then I hit the floor and I started praying in the Holy Ghost and crying out to God saying, God, forgive me, wash me. And I'm praying for this doctor. And then God said a fourth thing to me in that hotel room. He said, cast yourself down. Well, I knew what the scripture said in 2 Corinthians 10, 
Chapter 10, verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into the captivity uh, of obedience to Jesus Christ. And so I said, well, Lord, I stood to my feet and began to argue with God as if that's going to result in anything. I says, God, your word says cast down thoughts and imaginations. He says, cast yourself down. And I says, but God, your word says cast down every thought and imagination that exalts itself against the knowledge of your word. He says, cast yourself down. But I says, but God, he says, you have become the imagination. Cast yourself down. And I says, what do you mean I've become the imagination? He says, don't you travel every week and preach somewhere? And I go, yeah, yeah, I, I do. And he says, don't you think you're functioning under my anointing? And I go, yeah, I, I do. And he says, well, may I inform you that you're not functioning under my anointing? I says, what? He says, yeah, you've become the imagination. You think you're still carrying my anointing and you're not. Now listen to the argument that I came up with. I says, but God, I have prophesied in your name. But God, I've cast out devils in your name. And now, Tara, I'm getting ready for the grand finale. And I'm thinking, oopsies. I know where this scripture is going. I don't know that we want to go there. Because what does the scripture say? Many will come to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many marvelous wonders in your name, and then I will declare from them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What was going on in my life? Listen to me, folks. It doesn't matter whether it's a big thing or a little thing. When we hold on to unforgiveness, anger, a grudge, just something in our life. What happens is we cannot hold on to both God and unforgiveness or bitterness at the same time. It's either one or the other. And I had held on to bitterness so long, I was walking in deception and still believed that everything was okay in my life while I'm traveling the world preaching the word of God and helping other people all over the world. I wouldn't be standing here if it wasn't for the grace of God and God reaching out to me by his grace in that hotel room. Wouldn't be here. Wouldn't be here. I was preaching this same message in Ajax, Ontario, Canada through an interpreter, because it was a church of 500 people. Half of them spoke French, half English. And so after the service was over, this brother comes to the pastor's office, and uh, he, he says, uh, brother, he says, can I talk to you a minute? I says, well, yeah, sure. He says, are you telling me that I have to pray for the people that hurt my life? He says, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. He says, well, I grew up in Rwanda under the reign of Idi Amin. And they came into our village one night with machetes. 
My wife and I hid, and when we got up in the morning, half of my family and half of my wife's family were brutally murdered and butchered. He says, I still remember to this day their bodies were baked in the sun. We had to break their bones. Their blood and the dirt of the earth was all over me. And we couldn't dig individual graves because there were so many. We had to put them in mass graves. And he says, are you telling me I've got to pray until the love of God grows in my heart for these people? Man, I'm telling you, this is where the rubber meets the road. He says, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Because if you don't do that, it's not going to be God that leads your life. It's not going to be his word that leads your life. His blessing won't be upon you. Instead of being full of the Holy Spirit, you'll be full of the spirit of the devil. And you don't want that in your life if you hold on to this unforgiveness. Man, he lunged at me. I thought there was going to be a fight in the pastor's office. And he threw his arms around me. And he just started wailing. I'm not talking about crying tears. I'm talking about wailing. This is way beyond tears. And he's going, God, if there's any way by your mercies that somehow you can put forgiveness in my heart for the people that did this to my family. And he's wailing and he's praying in tongues and I'm praying in tongues and he's slinging snot all over me and I'm slinging snot. And by the time he gets done, there's snot and tears all over the side of my suit jacket. Three weeks later, my cell phone rings. And it's this guy calling me from Ajax, Ontario, Canada. He says, Reverend, I called the main office in Toronto, and they felt under these circumstances it would be okay for me to call you on your cell phone. I says, Brother, how can I help you? He says, Well, you know, I've done exactly what you told me to do. I've been praying for the people that hurt my life and they, they murdered my family. I says, okay. And he says, well, he says, there's something bothering me. I go, what's, what's bothering you, brother? And, and he says, well, I'm not mad at these people anymore. And he says, I can understand forgiving someone. But he says, I don't understand why I'm not mad. I says, well, you know, it seems like God's working in your life, brother. And, and he says, well, there's something bothering me worse. I, I go, okay, tell me what it is. He says, well... You don't know this about me, but he says, in my field of expertise, I'm a very highly educated, qualified, university-level professor. And uh, he, he says, I speak seven different languages, but he says, I've been without employment for the last year, and I'm on the verge of losing everything. My home, my cars, my marriage. I says, well, let, let's pray that God provides employment. He says, you don't understand. I go, well, what could I possibly not understand? He says, I was called into the University of Ottawa a couple days ago, and they hired me on the spot as one of their professors. And I says, well, let's give praise to God. He says, you don't understand. I says, what don't I understand? He says, I never sent them a resume. I talked to no one. I didn't apply for employment at that university. And I says, well, let's give God praise. He says, you don't understand. There's something bothering me worse. And I said, well, you just spit it out. 
we don't want to have this conversation until Jesus comes. <laughs> and then he said this. He says, I've got this question. I says, well, what's the question? He says, I've been wondering. He says, could it have been the bitterness, the anger, and the unforgiveness in my life that was causing me to be subject to a spirit of poverty and not be able to get the employment I needed to bless God's kingdom and take care of my family. I was silent and he was silent. I never thought of that before. I, I, I never put two and two together like that before. But then I said to him, I says, brother, I believe that is correct. I believe that when we hold on to unforgiveness and bitterness and anger, God can't lead our life anymore and we become subject to the spirit of poverty and we cannot make a living at the income level we need. Well, I tell you folks, the day that we're living in, where inflation, you know, and stuff that's going on, income needs are going up, this is not a day you and I want to hold on to anything, no matter how small it is. You say, what happened to you? Well, it was the 1996 Holy Spirit Conference in Midland, Michigan. And uh, there was a name on the chair there for me because about another 100 or 130 preachers were going to be at this conference. And uh, so I go there and I couldn't sit in the chair because I'm still shaking like I got the palsy. And I was so embarrassed. See, the devil did this to me, but I'm the one who's carrying embarrassment about it. Isn't that crazy? But that's what the devil does to us. He twists everything around. He comes and thrashes our life and then makes us feel embarrassed about it. And I couldn't even sit with my own ministry comrades and friends. And so I said, Cherie, let's go to the back and see if something's in the back. I can't sit here. And there was these two chairs open behind these two ladies that had these great big old hats on like you'd wear on an Easter Sunday. And I'm thinking, there we go. There's my hiding place. I'm hiding behind their hats. I'll, I'll listen to Pastor Barkley preach the message. And when he's done and says, amen, Cherie and I will slip out the door. No one will ever know we were here. Because I'm still shaking like I got the palsy. So when Dr. Barkley gets up there, he says, the first words out of his mouth, wetland, get up here. And I'm thinking, how did he know I'm here? And I looked over at one of the ushers who was a personal friend, Smitty. And I'm thinking, Smitty, you did it. You snitched on me. You snitched on me. So I get out of my chair and I reluctantly walk up there. And as I'm getting close to him, he just points to me because he knew the whole situation. And he says, wetland, Satan has lost. He said that. Spirit of God hit me, and I start twirling and spinning and spinning around. You know, like figure skaters at the end of their finale and performance. And I'm spinning around, and I'm thinking, no human being can possibly twirl like this. This is absolutely freaking ridiculous. Then I just spin and spin and spin, and then I hit the floor, 
and I couldn't get up. And I'm laying there, and Dr. Barkley starts talking about his books, and I'm waiting for the ushers to come get me, and they don't come get me. And then he's into his message, and so then he's walking past me, and his shoes are getting close to my head, and I'm thinking, I hope he doesn't kick me in the head. And, and my head turned up, and I saw the monitors, the big screens. And this thing's being televised nationwide. And so the cameras are on me while I'm laying there and I'm thinking, oh no, I'm on TV. And then it came to me that years ago it was prophesied to me, one day you'll be on TV. And I'm thinking, this is not what I had in mind. So after the service, the ushers help get me in the car. My wife drives me home. They help get me in bed. I'm vibrating all day long, all night long. And the next morning, I get up, and I'm going to the Midland Community Center to work out because I'm trying to make my body get back into shape. And uh, so I get to the community center, and I pick up a dumbbell. And when I pick up a dumbbell, I realize my hand is steady. I'm not shaking anymore. I'm not shaking anymore. And I'm thinking, Jesus, you healed me. And I start crying like a baby in the community center. And I says, Jesus, I begged you. I begged you for years. I says, why? Why did it take so long? Now listen, listen to me. Here's what he said. He says, I couldn't heal you because you were too full. And I said, what? He said, you were too full. And I go, what do you mean I was too full? He said, Kim, you were so full of bitterness, so full of hatred, so full of anger so full of unforgiveness there was no room in your heart for me he says every time you asked me to come and heal you I came and I stood at the door of your heart and knocked and when you opened the door I couldn't come in because there was no room inside you for me you see when we hold on to unforgiveness and bitterness hatred the reason Jesus said I'll say to those of you I never knew you it's because anger and unforgiveness and grudges and bitterness so sharply severs our relationship with God that it's as if, it says in the Greek language, it's as if he never knew us. With every head bowed, with every eye closed, listen, if you know in your heart, I don't care how small it is right now, you know you need to let go of something today, right now. Start raising your hand all over the building. That's me. That's me. You need to let go of bitterness. That's me. You need to let go of anger. That's me. You need to let go of unforgiveness. That's me. No matter how small it is, all over the building, that's me. Be honest with yourself. That's me. That's me. Everyone stand to your feet right now.
Stand to your feet. And if you raised your hand, and even if you didn't raise your hand, you come up here at the altar with me right now. God doesn't condemn us, but he convicts us so that he can free us. And we're going to have a lot of people get free today. Come on now. Somebody's done something to you. You grew up in a family and they didn't love you. You don't feel like your dad loved you, like your mom loved you. You felt like you were abandoned. Come on now. At work, somebody plotted against you. They did this to me. It's because of them that I got fired. It's because of them that I got laid off. It's because of them that I got let go. Come on, there's more room at this altar. There's more room at this altar. Don't leave this building today and carry the same bitterness, the same anger inside of your heart that you walked in with. Come on, pray in the Holy Ghost. Come on, there's still room. Let's, let's move to the side. We still have people coming. We still have people deciding. Those of you that are still deciding, let me ask you this. How many more nights are you spending with the frogs? How many more days are you going to not be able to get the job that you need to financially take care of you and blame it on someone else instead of the anger or bitterness or the grudge that you're holding on to? Come on, this will free up your income, amen? Now listen to me and every one of you look at me. Eye to eye, heart to heart. Let's kind of swivel a camera over here. Because those of you that are live streaming, this will tremendously help you too. One of the hardest things for me to understand when the Lord spoke to me in that hotel room is, why do I have to repent? Why do I have to repent? Here's why. I, I didn't understand that when you and I repent, we're surrendering our heart to God. And what we're doing is when we repent, it's the grace of God reaching out to free us so that what people did and what the enemy did to destroy us, we'll get free from and it will never hurt us or harm us again. Amen. So I'm going to kind of lead everybody of us in a prayer right now that I prayed in that hotel room. And yes, I do want you to repeat this after me. Amen. Say, Heavenly Father, please forgive me. I repent. I did not know that holding on to bitterness, anger, and unforgiveness would sever my relationship with you. I don't want that. I also did not know that I would be the one who would be poisoning my own family, whom I love, and I don't want that. I repent, and I come back and I embrace you. I want you, Jesus as my Savior. And Lord, I choose to forgive. I forgive everyone who has hurt me. 
and I let those things go in Jesus' name. And I make a commitment right now to pray for those that have hurt my life until your love grows inside me and I fall in love with the people that have hurt me so deeply. And God, I cast myself down because I've become the imagination because I imagined it won't hurt me to hold on just a little bit of anger, a little bit of bitterness, a little bit of unforgiveness. Lord, you said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So I cast myself down and I humble myself before you in Jesus' name. This will be my song That you are always good I sing